Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law from Australia and around the metaverse. This week, the singularity approaches. Artificial intelligence and technology are accelerating. Public expectations are shifting and competition law and regulation are scrambling to keep up. Our AI guru, Peter Waters, is here to tell us what we can do to prepare. You have a business facing this vague standard of unfairness, viewed in retrospect by the ACCC, with the consequences of being very large fines. And as technology involves massive investment, like if you're going to introduce AI into your business, that's a massive undertaking and a large investment, you're facing this very inexact standard that could be applied to you somewhere down the, the track. We'll hear more about that in just a minute. But first, Matt, tell us what's happening around the grounds. So you know the thing where you first hear about something and then suddenly it's everywhere? Like this podcast. <laughs> like that. I was thinking about the Bader-Meinhof effect, you know, named after that West German militant group in the 70s. I thought that was the thing where the less people know about something, the better they think they are at it. Uh, that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Bader-Meinhof effect is an experimental rock band from the 1990s. Now, that's the John Spencer Blues explosion, I think. But anyway, I prefer the Jurgen Klopp effect, which is the one that makes Liverpool win everything. Anyway, why are we talking about this? It's just that ever since we spoke about hipster antitrust with Betty Mkachwa on our last episode, it seems like there are antitrust hipsters all over the place. Rod Sims hasn't signed up, has he? <laughs> no, but Simon Holmes, who's a member of the Competition Appeal Tribunal in the UK, has told a conference that competition law has to take sustainability and climate change into account if it wants to stay relevant, since those are such important issues. For example, businesses should be allowed to cooperate with each other to tackle climate change, like agreeing they'll all move to cleaner energy sources, even if that raises prices, and the competition law shouldn't get in the way of that. But didn't the US Department of Justice recently investigate the car makers for agreeing to lower their emissions? They did, and they dropped the investigation even before all the antitrust hipsters moved in. But the fact that it happened at all may have discouraged similar kinds of cooperation. And Simon Holmes says that competitors probably can coordinate to combat climate change under EU law, which requires all of their policies and actions to promote environmental protection and sustainable development. But in the UK now and other countries as well, that might not be the case. And even in the EU, it'd be good to have some clearer guidelines to remove any doubt about that. Mm, and it sounds like the European Commission is putting those guidelines together right now. That's right. Commissioner Vestaya has says that they're about to publish some guidance on when companies can cooperate to get out of bad environmental habits. So she's mentioned logistics and packaging as a couple of examples. Well, there you go. Hipsters everywhere. Or is that just the Alan Parsons project? It's the Mason-Dixon line. But I'm glad you brought up the automotive emissions investigation because, of course, the car makers aren't always trying to reduce their emissions. In fact, the High Court here has just upheld Volkswagen's fine for Dieselgate, which remains the biggest penalty under the Australian consumer law. So to recap, this is the one where Volkswagen paid about $35 billion billion with a B, in fines around the world, after it programmed 11 million of its cars to keep their nitrogen oxide emissions down while they were being lab tested by regulators, but not when they were out on the road. And about 125 million of that was paid here in Australia. That's right. Volkswagen admitted the conduct and agreed with the ACCC to pay $75 million. But Justice Foster in the federal court thought that that was manifestly inadequate, and he put it up to $125 million, 
which is about two thirds higher if I've got the maths right there. Volkswagen then appealed, but the new amount was upheld by the full federal court earlier this year. And the High Court has just dismissed their application for special leave to appear. So that sounds like the end of the road. Yeah, they've run out of, uh, well, not steam, but nitrogen oxide, I guess. I've been waiting for you to bring in a Fast and the Furious reference. Was that it? That would be a bit too easy, wouldn't it? It would. But Dieselgate had a sequel, didn't it? Or a spin-off? Yeah, a couple of months ago, Volkswagen and BMW were fined a billion dollars for agreeing not to compete on lowering diesel emissions. They'd all just do the bare minimum to meet the European standards and not go any further than that, even though they had the technology to make cleaner cars. Is Volkswagen appealing that one too? Uh, Well, BMW accepted the fine right away. Volkswagen said they were thinking about an appeal because the agreement didn't relate to pricing and it was never implemented, so no customers were actually harmed. But they have gone quiet since then, and there's still no public decision on the matter since they're working at issues of confidentiality. Daimler, of course, was also involved in the arrangement, but they didn't have to pay anything. Well, they flipped on the others and got full immunity, right? They did. In fact, it was a bit like when Dominic Toretto betrayed the rest of the Fast and Furious family in the eighth movie, The Fate of the Furious. Ah, there it is. So I guess you'd call this a Vin Dieselgate. Uh, My work here is done. (laughs) Well, no, it's not. No, it's not, because we're turning to crime now, Matt. What update can you give us from Cartel Corner? So we mentioned last time that the former export manager of Alkaloids Australia has become the first individual to plead guilty to a criminal cartel charge. Now the company has also pleaded guilty to price fixing, bid rigging and market sharing in relation to scopolamine and butyl bromide, which is used to treat stomach cramp. You just wanted the chance to say that again. I didn't want to waste it. Anyway, the the company has pleaded to three counts and admitted its guilt in relation to seven more offences. And those seven can be taken into account in sentencing, but they can't increase the maximum sentence. Now, our friends at MLEX have reported that 30 other charges against the company were dropped. Sounds like their eyes were bigger than their stomach. They might have bitten off more than they could chew. But the company and its former export manager will appear in federal court for sentencing next year. And of course, that will be the first time an individual has been sentenced for a criminal cartel offence. So it'll be very interesting to see what the judgment says. It really will. Well, time for our deep dive. Matt, you've spoken to Peter Waters on the regulation of artificial intelligence, which is kind of ironic because Peter's actually one of the most naturally intelligent people I've ever met. So what do I need to know before we dive in? I've just read that there's a private antitrust complaint in the US against Intuitive Surgical, which makes the Da Vinci brand of surgical robots. The complaints about aftermarket servicing for parts of these robots, specifically the scalpel and forcep attachments that connect with the robotic arms. But basically, I thought you should know that there are surgical robots now. Just the thought of that will give me nightmares about hacking and botch surgeries. But anyway, let's just listen to Peter Water, shall we? Let's do that. I'm talking to Peter Waters, who these days is a consultant with the competition regulation team, but was a partner in and leader of the group for many years. Peter, you've been involved in regulation, and in particular, the regulation of technology across at least four decades by my count. Tell us, where did you start? What stayed the same, if anything has, over that time? And how have things changed in your experience? Hi, Matt, from the Tweed Valley, Bundjalung country. Yes, it's been four decades. When I first started, a portable modem was the size of a phone book and the must-have technology device was a Motorola 2G flip phone. So that's how much things have changed. I suppose in the sort of stillness of lockdown, I've reflected that much of my client work has turned around three questions, what I sort of call can, may and should. And that really until the last few years, they were changing how they worked together, but they were pretty predictable 
and the change was incremental. And what's happened over the last really two to three years is that with both COVID and digital transformation, they've been turned on their head in quite unpredictable ways. So by can, I mean, can you do it technologically? And when I first started out, change seemed rapid. But looking back now, it followed a fairly incremental, predictable pathway. You know, I remember one of the first things I worked on was trying to work out whether a company was allowed to put a mobile phone call on the same bill as a fixed line telephone call. And it took them six months of re-engineering their systems to be able to do it. So because the technology was fairly predictable and limited, the box in which you had to think about the legal issues was well-defined by the technology itself. Then there's the May question, and May is, can I do it under the law? If the technology lets me do it, does the law let me do it? And again, looking backwards now, the law was relatively rudimentary. The requirements were pretty straightforward. So, for example, in the privacy area, if you drafted a consent, you could basically do almost anything with a customer's information. And there was no oversight about how user-friendly the customer consent was. And we've all seen those click-throughs that we never read. And the third question was should. And should is really the ethical question about whether a company should do it. And really, that was rarely asked. Should was really doesn't make a profit for shareholders. So essentially, that were the three questions you always looked at. Now, it's fundamentally changed. So if we take the technology question, can, it's almost limitless. What you can do with data and information is almost limitless. Your imagination is the limit. On the question of May, the legal question, obviously we have a lot more regulation, but it is also much more sceptically and intrusively applied by the regulators. And I don't say that in a bad way, but it's just that they are much more active in how they think the law should be interpreted and applied, and the scope of the law has rapidly expanded. And the third, of course, is the biggest change, the should. It's a question that is now asked and needs to be asked always. Probably is best known as the Rowena Orr question from the Banking Royal Commission. Does this meet community expectations? That was the first question she asked when the banking chief executives got in the witness box. And that's now a question which all boards need to ask themselves. But not only have those three questions individually changed in scope, but how they work together is fundamentally different. And it's very dynamic. It's no longer a fixed set of relationships between can, may, and should, but they're constantly each changing and how they work together is changing. So today's should question about what is ethical soon becomes tomorrow's regulatory question about what's allowed legally. So that's kind of the big picture change. So it really sounds like those are some pretty fundamental changes happening in all three of those key areas all at the same time. And as you say, independently of each other. And I think we can all now intuitively understand that technology has changed the world and almost every part of our lives. But is there one aspect or I guess one development that you think is the most important out of all of those things when we're talking about the challenges of regulation these days? I think that the way in which business is organized and conducted has been turned on its head. So in the past, the corporate boundary was also the outer boundary of the business conducted by the company. And lawyers and compliance people all focused on gathering and containing within that corporate boundary 
data about customers and information about customers. So companies gathered information for their own purpose and they used it in their own products. But that's being turned on its head because we all know that information is more valuable in a commercial environment when it's shared for two reasons. One, you can combine it with other information and so you can learn more about your customers by using information from someone else. And secondly, other people may be able to use your information to sell their own products so you can monetize the information. And so the lawyers now, rather than looking inwards from the boundaries of the company to think about how to safeguard the information, they've now got to turn around the other way and think about how information can be shared, monetized, and in a way that is not going to get the company into both a problem with regulators and breach the trust with its customers. So it's a very inside-out world compared to what it was before. And I think that's the biggest change. And we really haven't come to grips with the consequences of fundamentally restructuring how business is conducted. And so how's regulation meant to keep up with all this when it's happening, it seems to me, at a speed and at a scale that seems almost beyond the level of the human and human understanding and so far beyond the way we're used to thinking about these things from a regulatory point of view? It's really tough. I think the temptation needs to be avoided to try and develop a theory of everything. And I think that that's what some regulators are trying to do. And in some ways, that's been led a little bit by the ACCC and in its digital platforms inquiry. That sort of theory of everything, in a way, and there's a great sort of diagram in the ACCC's report where they, you know, they're very blatant about it. There's a sort of like a, what they see as a bedrock of something called fairness. And then sitting above the bedrock is privacy law, competition law, and consumer law. So if the use of information is unfair, it may be unfair towards other competitors and breach competition law, or it may be unfair to consumers and it breaches consumer law, or it may infringe on basic human rights and therefore infringes on privacy law. But the ACCC's theory of everything is fairness. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing because inevitably with both the scope of technology and its rapid change, you need a, some sort of flexible theory. But the problem is when you take that flexible, ill-defined principle and you marry it with investigations after the fact and you marry that with massive penalties, you have a business facing this vague standard of unfairness viewed in retrospect by the ACCC with the consequences of being very large fines. And as technology involves massive investment, like if you're going to introduce AI into your business, that's a massive undertaking and a large investment, you're facing this very inexact standard that could be applied to you somewhere down the, the track. And some other regulators have taken this sort of fairness standard, but they've tried to do it in a bit of a different way using some new tools, such as in the UK as a result of the Furman report into the digital economy. And they look at building a more sort of co-regulatory approach between the regulator and the industry through industry codes, which are developed upfront. Now, it's not possible to eliminate uncertainty and you have to keep changing the codes as technology changes, but it at least narrows the sort of field of uncertainty and risk and allows businesses to sort of make a better decision about can, may and should in that sort of context. It seems that 
even with those tools and even understanding the law as well as you possibly can and taking conservative approach to try and stay within the bounds of the law as it's understood. That might not always be enough given the Rowena Orr issues that can arise. Yeah, look, it's not enough. Perhaps the next Royal Commission in four years' time will be a bank executive who is um, cross-examined about why did you think that algorithm met community expectations? The problem with an algorithm is you can't program fairness into an algorithm. It can only detect and follow patterns. And if it is making unfair decisions, it makes them on a repeating and enormous scale. So the challenge is even greater going forward because it can automate unfairness in your business. So that means, I think, that as a company and as a board, you need to approach these new technologies in a fundamentally different way to how we've thought about acquiring technology in the past in a corporate environment. Probably the first thing is that there's been a lot of focus in companies about cybersecurity, which is a good thing. But I think in some sort of ways, that's led many companies and boards to think about decisions of, about technology as a compliance risk issue. And they have it sitting in the risk committee. I think that's first thing that's a mistake. The second thing is that you could never buy AI or you should never buy AI off the shelf. Because AI works on detecting patterns in huge masses of information, you will not necessarily know how the developer of the AI trained it. And so the procurement process has to be very different. You've got to spend some time understanding how the AI was educated and trying to match that against your business and the profile of your customers before you commit to the AI. The second thing is that you can't sit and forget because AI learns. That's the whole point about AI. And so if it's in the basement churning away on your customer data, you're not quite sure what it's going to learn and what it will start doing. And so you really have to curate it. You have to like watch what it's doing and figure out whether you think it is actually doing the right thing because it will learn past you. It will learn past the guy who developed it. It will learn in completely new directions. And then the third thing is you've got to work out whether you're going to have it as a substitute for humans or whether you're going to still have humans involved in some way, whether it's an aid to human decision-making or you know humans in the loop, as they call it, or whether there is supervision by humans which is called humans over the loop. And given that there are these regulatory standards of unfairness, you know, even though I've criticised them, they will be around and they will strengthen. And given you can't program AI to be fair, you are going to have to have humans involved in, in your decision-making by machines in some way. And then the last thing is, you know it'll make bad decisions. Something will go wrong because there's so much variability in humans and you need to have a way of dealing with it because if you don't deal with it well and quickly, you will suffer damage to your reputation. But more importantly, you will breach the trust that your customers have of your use of AI. And increasingly, coming out of the European directions, customers have the right to either opt in or opt out of automated decision-making. And so you won't be able to use this AI to manage your business and deal with your customers unless you have 
some level of consent from the customers. And that will be your biggest problem if you are unable to quickly respond when it's learnt the wrong thing or it hasn't dealt with an individual case in the right way. So it's all sounding quite science fiction already. <laughs> I was wondering what, what does this mean for us as legal advisors, whether we're external lawyers or in-house counsel? What do we need to look out for and potentially change in the way we work? We also have to think about it less in a framework of compliance. Now, compliance is, is a big issue, is a big part of it. But I think we have to help clients also understand that they need to apply a single lens to their decisions about this technology, where they're looking both at not only current regulation, they're looking at future regulatory attitudes. So there's a bit of us predicting where we think the regulators are going. They need to also look at it from the perspective of consumer trust. They need to look at it from the perspective of what will governments feel? Because one thing I think we've learned in the COVID experience is that politicians of all political stripes are very ready to intervene. We need to be able to help both identify all of those perspectives, help bring them together in the decision-making about how to deploy this technology, how to manage this technology, and then how to fix things when it goes wrong. So compliance is an important part of it, but you need a bigger single lens that looks at all those parts of the business in making these decisions about technology. That's great. Thanks so much for all of that, Peter. It's easy for us to get lost in all of the changes that are happening in technology and regulation as well. So it's fantastic to be able to step back a bit and, and get a broader and more principled view on these things. Yeah. So look, I think people wanted to really read something that was very interesting. Stanford University every year does a global index of artificial intelligence. Its latest report has come out and it talks about two of the fastest developments in the last 12 to 18 months. And they are basically what computers can see and how they respond to visual images. And the other area where AI has really moved ahead by leaps and bounds in the last 18 months is recognition of language, both AI listening but also AI being able to answer questions and not just the sort of, you know, Siri questions of looking up in basically Wikipedia and giving you an answer, but actually being able to reason in response to your question. And these language skills of AI in particular, its listening skills are better than humans and its comprehension skills are approaching humans. And that's this year. That's today, right now. So it's a great report to have a look at, and it gives you a, an idea of just how immediate these changes are. Well, I um, look forward to the software update that will improve my Siri to that level. Um, <laughs> I'll definitely look up the Sanford paper, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you. Well, that was a great interview. And no surgical robots. No, but we'll keep everyone posted about any further nightmarish developments. And I should say, we've had some fun with voice recognition in the past, but it's much better than it used to be. And of course, everything's changing very quickly and will keep changing. So that's your crystal ball for this week? That things will change in the future? Yeah, look, I'm reasonably confident about that one. But if you want to get a bit more specific, the Australian Energy Regulator has raised some pretty interesting questions about the regulatory framework in the gas sector and whether it's still fit for purpose. And they've just issued this information paper on regulating gas pipelines under uncertainty. And I think it could light a bit of a fire under the industry as our low 
low carbon future becomes more of a reality. This is very interesting in the light of the COP26 outcomes and decarbonisation, because their paper says pretty bluntly that there are conflicting policy objectives between decarbonisation, which encourages customers to reduce natural gas consumption, versus the regulatory framework, which encourages more gas consumption to promote efficient utilisation and lower prices. Yeah, and it asks whether the framework should take into account the cost benefit of reducing carbon emissions in providing gas services. And when you've got a regulator questioning the fundamental objectives of their own regulatory framework, you know, it's almost like a competition authority challenging the consumer welfare standard. Well, they certainly ask some existential questions about energy transition and the gas industry's future. Yeah, it might set off a few flares around the place. Was that a gas joke or a hipster joke? It could be both. <laughs> well, it's a gas. Thanks, Matt. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes, and we've got some great stuff in the weeks ahead, including Louise Klampke on aviation and Charles Corey on important changes to the unfair contract terms regime. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. And any surgical robots you know. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.